Good morning, brothers and sisters. Good to see you this morning. I want to say thank you to all those young people that were up front today, uh, leading us in music, putting smiles on our faces. Thank you all so much. And Rose, what a song. Sung powerfully. Thank you so much. I'd like to jump right in the scripture this morning with Genesis chapter 2, 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. That's a profound statement by the creator of heaven and earth. As a matter of fact, this is really the first statement in the Bible that kind of gives us a glimpse into the mindset and thought processes of God. And if you think back on the story of creation, you remember every day, everything that he creates is followed by God saying it was what? It was good. And this is the first statement we come across where God says something is not good. And it is that man should not be alone, that that is, that is not good. Science certainly seems to be backing up what God has proclaimed from the very beginning. The American Psychological Association recently did a study of over 20,000 adults and showed that nearly half of them responded that they felt alone. That is an, that is an all-time high statistically. The Health Resources and Services Administration, say that five times fast, recently said loneliness and social isolation can be as damaging to health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. The Centers for Disease Control, the CDC reports, some of these risk factors for social isolation, saying that it significantly increased a person's risk of premature death from all causes, a risk that may rival those of smoking, obesity, and physical inactivity. This social isolation is associated with about 50% increased risk of dementia, which runs in my family. Poor social relationships characterized by social isolation or lo loneliness is associated with a 29% increased risk of heart disease, a 32% increased risk of stroke. Loneliness is associated with, a higher, with higher rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide. Loneliness among heart failure patients is associated with a nearly four times increased risk of death, 68% increased risk of hospitalization, 57% increased risk of emergency department visits. We could go on and on about these risks of loneliness. And today we find ourselves now living in a great paradox. What do I mean? We are more connected to the world than ever. Can I get an amen out there? Through these devices, which simultaneously we find ourselves more alone than ever because of these devices. We can talk to anyone by the pressing of some buttons, and after I wrote that, I realized we're not even pressing buttons anymore. It's just a touch screen. Which but pressing these buttons is eroding the close connection that we formerly experienced before we could press those buttons. And what is pressing my buttons today, and hopefully yours too, is that the enemy of souls continues to erode and 
our society's values and, and ruin us as a society with everything that pertains to God and his character. He is using every means necessary to isolate us and get us to the point where he can lead us to destroy us. Together we are stronger than what we are alone. Throw in a pandemic on top of all these problems, and it seems that maybe he, the enemy of souls, will finish us off, but not us. No way. Amen? No, we know the answer to these problems. We know that God is the source of all wisdom, and we know that his word is strong and powerful, and it helps us understand how to live life to the fullest. God has an answer for isolation. He has the answer for loneliness and depression that comes as a result. And I'd like to propose this morning that God's answer for disconnected and dying people is the word love, the concept love. And I'd like to propose that people in the world are increasingly feeling isolated and alone because we are increasingly losing our understanding of what love is. That's why this morning I'm excited to continue the sermon series that we've started here in the Medford Church this year called Powerful Love. And today we're going to be looking at a sermon entitled, What is Love? Love is powerful, but it won't be too powerful if we don't remember what love truly is and what it looks like. And the more we learn about love from a biblical standpoint, I think the better off we will be with keeping our current relationships healthy and thriving and set us up to be able to include more people into our circles of love so that we can experience life together with them, not just now, but through eternity. One of the best descriptions of love, and I think you'll agree with me, is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and that's our point of study this morning, starting in verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're going to look at verses 4 through 7. I'm going to put it up on the screen, we're going to read it together, and then we'll dissect it. Paul writes and says, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things endures all things. I love that Paul starts by saying that love suffers long. As Christians, we believe that sin has entered into the world, and because of that sin, we have all seen pain and suffering as a result, and it's a lasting result. And as Christians, this should not shock us, right? That suffering is a continued problem, continual problem in the world. 
In other, wor- in other words, men and women, boys and girls, doesn't matter what age, everyone is prone to suffering in some unique way. We are all suffering in different ways. All of us. So I believe Paul is telling us here at the very beginning that love is described as allowing people to suffer around us while still desiring to maintain a relationship with them, to be connected to them still. Now most of us can enjoy an initial relationship, meeting somebody and getting to know them for a short space of time, but oftentimes it doesn't take long, right, to start to understand and see the brokenness in this new individual that we have come in contact with. We see the depths of their brokenness, and it's very tempting at that point, isn't it, to kind of back away a little bit, let the relationship fade, or we... Worse off, get mad maybe at that person when their brokenness affects us and we tell them that we do see their problems, they're not hiding it from us, we see that and then announce to them that the relationship is over. That's one way to live. And many, many people are living in that vicious pattern of relationships, but the Bible is calling our attention to the fact that this is the opposite of love because love suffers long. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. I love this about love. Proverbs 10, 12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers how much? All sins. Let's be honest. Our brokenness means that we are all prone to being cantankerous and difficult to deal with quite often. Difficult to be around. But with love in the picture, hatred, without love in the picture, hatred begins to stir up strife and there's all kinds of problems as a result. However, with love, something replaces hate, and that is kindness. As a matter of fact, that's, when, that's what Paul says next in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says that love suffers long and is kind. This is one of the best descriptions of love, I think, is kindness. Kindness doesn't mean you always agree with everyone, but you can agree to disagree and still be kind, right? There are turkeys visiting us on the right side you want to see them. (laughs) I can't help but look at them. (laughs) See, and they're all puffed up. Those are two males, I think, and they're not happy probably with one another. Okay, so it's a good sermon illustration. Now, talking about kindness, allowing you to be around others, even though you might disagree with them, I want to tell you about my fifth and sixth grade teacher. I have a little boy in fifth grade now, by the way, but I remember when I was in fifth and sixth grade, we had a teacher, and her name was, was Sherry Coates. I say was because she died way too young um, in her 40s. Uh, her l- younger brother was a good friend of ours. Um, died in his teens. Very tragic. Wonderful parents who are still alive today and we keep in contact. Sherry Coates was one of the most fantastic teachers you could ever imagine having. I went on the Tri-City Academy alumni webpage 
and saw some testimonies of people who felt about her the exact way I did. Now, she was full of love. How do we know that she was full of love? Well, because she was so kind. Everything she did was through kindness. She disciplined us, and when she did it, she did it with kindness, and we couldn't help but know that she loved us. We could not be mad at her because we knew that she cared about us. And I remember once we were in the gymnasium for P.E., and I don't even know if it was April Fool's Day, but we conjured up a plan to trick her. And uh, our beloved teacher, we staged a fight between me and my buddy Chris. Now, yes, this is in the 80s and my hair, you know, just please excuse the picture. But that's me in the top, my buddy Chris down at the bottom, he was in sixth grade. And somehow we all conjured up this plan to stage a, a play, pretend fight between me and my buddy Chris and call our teacher in to see this horrible thing happening. So we, the kids, we all got together and we got decorated up with black eyes and they opened some ketchup packets and we're, you know, putting it on our face and under our, you know, lip, like a busted lip and, you know, just trying to look as legit as possible. Then someone tore off upstairs to go get Sherry, our teacher, and she came racing down as soon as she heard the news. And there we were, wrestling on the ground and play fighting for what we thought was a great practical joke. The kids had all made a circle around us, you know, and they were all cheering and loud, and boy, it looked real, you know, it was causing quite the uproar. And I can only imagine what was going through Sherry's head, you know, as she broke up the crowd and she sent everybody off to the classroom, everybody except for me and my buddy Chris. And she put us up against the wall, and I remember she put her hands on her hips, and she was breathing hard. And I just knew, you know, she had that look in her face like she was going to light us up. But one of us cracked a smile, and that's all it took. She knew immediately that this was just a big sham. And we all sat there and, and, and laughed for a moment together. Now, I'm not proposing that this was a good stunt to pull on anybody. But we knew we could get away with it with Sherry because we knew that she loved us and she allowed us to live in the vortex of her kindness even in all of our immaturity. And we knew that she could accept it and because of that, we wanted to respond and learn and grow. Some of the best lessons I've learned in history and all the things were her teaching us because I wanted to learn from her and it was exciting to learn for her from her. Sherry, awesome teacher, loved the atmosphere she gave us to learn in. You know, love provides us a beautiful framework for building in a safe environment for people to be in relationship with us and grow. Paul continues his master class in love in 1 Corinthians 13 by saying next that love does not envy. It, love is not envious of others. Love actually wants others to excel. You want others to do better and greater things even than you yourself can do, and you applaud that. That is not a threat when love is in your life. And that's 
an attractive quality, isn't it? When you're around people who champion you to excel and cheer you on, that is an attractive quality. Helps people want to be in relationship with you when we are like this. If we want to feel isolated and alone, then I'll give you the recipe on how to do that quickly again. You can constantly compete with everybody around you and constantly find ways to prove that you are better than them and that they can't do as good as you can do, right? That's a great recipe for breaking relationships or keeping people away. But the Bible tells us that love isn't jealous. And when we love, we don't have to go around parading ourselves and being puffed up like those turkeys right over there right? We don't have to be jealous of anything. Now, that doesn't mean that the people around us won't be puffed up and parading themselves around us. That doesn't mean that people won't be jealous of us. But we ourselves won't join in in that kind of activity when we're all about love. Maybe that's why Paul took time to write and exclaim in Galatians 6.14, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So no, we're not going to be jealous about anything, not going to be proud, not going to try to make ourselves look better than anybody else. Paul instructs us when we have love, we're not going to behave rudely, we're not going to seek things for ourselves, we're not going to be selfish. And I think this is pretty common sense oriented, right? We all resonate with this. We all see that love has no place for selfishness and this kind of jealousy. It's not a stretch. I say that to lead you into the next part because Paul, in the next section of 1 Corinthians 13, for all you gamers out there, he's about to ask us to level up in love. Are you ready? You ready for what he says next? Because this is leveling up. Paul says, not that, love thinks no evil. Chew on that one for a few minutes. Love thinks no evil. I challenge you with that statement. I challenge myself with that statement. For the next time that we're tempted to spout off, spout off about a person or about a people group that we disagree with. Instead of seeing evil in some others, instead of seeing evil in a people group that we disagree with, how about reversing course and seeing the opposite? What's the opposite of evil? Good. Let's look for good in others. So I challenge you this week, by the way, when you find, when you find yourself, and when I find myself saying something that is negative and evil about someone else, to follow it up. Let the word of God hit your heart suddenly and follow it up with something good about that person or group. Surely you can find something good to say. Follow it up, and hopefully the more we do that, we will see it be all the bad start to be replaced with good things. Right now, we have gone way over the deep end in this humble guy's estimation as a society in being far too willing to believe that everyone around us is inherently evil. 
you know, but take a step back out of the culture that we find ourselves surrounded with at the moment. Take a deep breath. and Let's try to re-examine that point of view and see that it is anti-Christian. Case in point, me. What's my occupation, by the way? Pastor, okay. Which means I uphold the values of this book, right? Well, I'm also a pastor who is steeped in our current culture. I'm steeped with you in that current culture. So I want to tell you a quick story just to illustrate that somewhat. We live across the road from two young adults that live in this house across the street. There's two apartments in that house. I know that they're young adults, not because I've gone over to meet them and see them, but I, I just know it because of the music that's like, you know, every day <laughs> coming out of the house. And there, one of them is a drummer. I know he's a drummer because I could hear the drum beats all the way up to my front porch and sometimes even late into the night. By the way, I am also a drummer. I am not an accomplished drummer. Not as nearly as accomplished as he is, by the way. But I do drum some. Anyway, thank you, Tim. Brother, appreciate that. All right, I can drum some. Anyway, suffice it to say, I had an impression of these two young guys, right? And I'll just have to admit, it wasn't that flattering in my mind. It just wasn't that flattering. Well, last Sabbath, I got a text while we were here for our Brother Terry Hill's memorial service. It was a beautiful service, by the way. We're going to miss him dearly. But while I was here, we got a te- I got a text that was a stray dog that wandered up to our house. And as soon as they sent me a picture of what the dog looked like, I thought, I think that belongs to those two guys across the street. I've seen them walking the dog. It was roughly the same color. I've not gotten close enough to really know. But I'm thinking that's what it, who it belonged to. So when I got home, I kind of begrudgingly went up to their house. I didn't even go to the house and get the dog. I went straight over to their house and knocked on the door. And you know what? These uh, two guys came out, and the dog did not belong to them, but they did know who it belonged to. But that's not, that was beside the point. I was blown away, quite pleasantly surprised to find out that these two fellows who lived there were some of the nicest guys you could ever meet. The dog wasn't theirs, but they volunteered to come get her and take her to the rightful owner. They thought they knew who it belonged to. They were engaging. They were nice. They were helpful, they were respectful, and they were pretty cool people, too. You know what I think? I think God sent that dog over to our house to give me a reality check. I believe God wanted me to remember that he wants me to look for the good in people instead of being so quick to maybe think of the opposite. I think Paul is giving us all a reality check in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that love thinks no evil. None. No evil. Love thinks no evil. That is pretty profound, isn't it? Are you guilty of thinking of evil of others lately? Aren't we all? We are all kind of speeding in the fast lane here, aren't we? Aren't we kind of all carpooling together in that fast lane, thinking that we're getting ahead? But I think that in trying to see the evil in others so often, I think that we are, we, I, 
I'm doing nothing but shining the light on the evil that is inherent within me. Are we looking for God everywhere? Are we eager to see God everywhere? Are we listening to hear his voice in all situations? We can see God if we search for him with all of our hearts. Amen? I recently read the story of a reader's, in Reader's Digest about a little boy who was a patient in a hospital room for the children's ward. And a nurse who wrote the story said that she was at the nurse's station next to his room and she could hear him late one night speaking in muffled tones in the room right next to her. It was pretty late and she was wondering who he could possibly be talking to. He was alone, so she turned on the intercom so she could hear. He said it was so sweet and so sincere uh, that he was praying out loud. She listened for a little bit, but it was getting a little late, so she knew he needed to get his rest, and so she tells the story, and she writes, I finally said softly but firmly, all right, Johnny, it's time to go to sleep now. She said there was quiet in the room for a moment, and then he said, okay, God, I will. She said he, she didn't hear a peep from him until morning. Johnny sincerely wanted to hear God's voice everywhere. You know, do we sincerely want to hear God's voice today? Speaking loud and clear about love, possibly this morning, do we want to hear him? Let's open our heart to him. And in seeing others also, he says, love seeks no evil, thinks no evil. Now the rest of 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7, scholars believe is talking about our relationship with others. Love keeps us from enjoy, rejoicing in iniquity. Instead, we get happy about the truth. It helps us bear all things and believe all things and hope all things and endure all things about others. Can we hope and believe all things about others? Pierre Steenberg, I don't know if you remember when he came, was it maybe a year or two years ago, he did that parent seminar about his kids and relationship. It was really, really great. I loved how he talked about painting that picture for his own kids. He said he always spoke in these terms with trying to uh, help them to, to understand their identity and see the good that God is calling them all to as a family. And he said he would often say to them, you know, paint that before them, that picture that he said, we are a family, this, you know, example. We are a family that believes in telling the truth, aren't we, kids? We are a family who believes in not cheating others, you know, these positives. I think that he got that from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which paints a beautiful picture of positivity. God is calling us in 1 Corinthians 13 to bear all things and believe all things and hope all things and do it all for the sake of others. By the way, let me remind us that this means that we'll do it for ourselves too, right? Can't we criticize ourselves even more so than we do others? Love doesn't allow us to think evil about ourselves. No. Actually, God is calling us to believe that we can do all things through Christ because he will strengthen us. It doesn't mean you won't see evil things in yourself, but when you see them, what do you do? 
You take him to the Savior, and he will accept your confession of those things and forgive you of that and pick you up and dust you off and keep you thinking positively and marching forward in the future with positivity. God wants us to have this framework. And isn't this what Jesus said he came to do? In John chapter 3, 16 and 17, the Bible says, Jesus actually said these words, For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to think evil of them, right? To see evil and everything. No, he came to not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Look to Jesus today when you have reason to feel condemned. And remember, he didn't come to condemn you. He didn't come to condemn me. Instead, he came to offer us eternal life. He came to call us to something better, a better life starting now and every day that we walk with him and we talk with him and we learn from him and hear his voice speaking goodness. So why should I go on condemning myself when my creator does not do that himself? Jesus had every right to let me and all of us have it. Jesus had every right to call fire down from heaven when that town told him to leave and get out. They drove him out and James and John wanted him to call fire down, but he didn't. Jesus had every right to stone that woman that was caught in adultery, but he didn't. Jesus had every right to say to Judas, no, you're not going to be among my twelve, but he didn't. Jesus had every right to condemn Herod and Pilate and all the corrupt government officials and all the corruption they stood for and to show them the true source of power in the universe, but he didn't. Jesus had every right to lash out at his accusers, those who nailed him to the cross. He did not deserve to be placed upon, but he didn't. Jesus instead chose a different path, the path of love, the path of relationship, that path of inclusiveness, the path that revolutionized our understanding and went against all of our sinful tendencies. Jesus came to show us that God is love. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us specifically what love is. It describes beautifully what love looks like on a practical basis. But folks, once we see God, we will fully see what love really looks like because the Bible is clear in 1 John 4, 8 that God himself is love. Do you want love in your life today in greater fashion. God isn't just willing to give you love. God is willing to go the extra step. Colossians 1.27 says it this way, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Folks, that's saying that God won't just give you love, 
God, who is love, will live in us himself. At the beginning, we talked about Genesis 2, 18, where God says it's not good for man to be alone. Well, God believes in that so much that he wants to come and live in us himself so that we don't have to be alone. And he says that he'll never leave us and he'll never forsake us. And I promise that he can completely and radically transform all of our lives to be a life that fully embodies love more and more and more. He can live in us. He can move through us in ways that we could have never imagined without him. Do you know what this means, folks? The answer to the question, what is love, can actually be answered, you and me, when we ask God to live within us. And I say, let's invite him to do just that again right now, shall we? Let's stand together and pray. Father in heaven, we are just so grateful for the fact that you are the full embodiment of what love really is. You didn't come to condemn us. You only want us to see that in you we have life and life eternal, that we're accepted, that we can exist in a relationship with you even in our immaturities and our sinfulness and our suffering. Lord, I pray that we will take a hard look at 1 Corinthians 13, that we will continue to measure ourselves by this. And when we see that we are not living up to this, that we will double down on our efforts to keep that relationship with you thriving, asking you to live in our hearts so that love will pour out of our lives and just change people's lives, that they would know they're accepted in that eternal kingdom you've promised and is soon to come. We love you, Lord. We thank you. Continue to work that awesome mystery in us, Christ in us, the hope of our glory. Bless us this week as we move your love throughout this valley. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.